I thank you, Pastor Mark, for that prayer and supplication. And uh, thank you all for being here this morning. And uh, you're honoring me by being willing to sit through a message that I hope I can preach with some effectiveness as we embark on a new series that we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke. And, and I just want to encourage you to maybe back up a few steps and, and, and maybe look at, look at this familiar gospel from a different angle, from a different perspective. You know, sometimes the things that we love the most, that are most precious to us, can become so familiar that we lose the luster of the love that we have that for individuals or, or other things that are very precious to us in our lives. You know, sometimes I know uh, on a marriage enrichment retreat, when you spend quality time with your spouse and, and you begin to look at them from a different light and, and rethink what, what those things, qualities about them that made them so special, you know, you, you find yourself becoming re-infatuated with them. And, and, you know, whereas before you'd gotten into a mundane kind of a, you know, relationship and you know even with our children sometimes if we just stop the routine of life and and go off and, and with with our kids or take one at a time and just go do something special with them that causes you to really focus on them and rekindle in you some of the things about that child that's so precious about them and makes them unique and special it kind of helps to give you a different perspective and, and deepens your appreciation for them well, shucks, you could even take something like your job. I know you probably say, I don't love my job. But, you know, sometimes we get into that routine, the rut of just going through the motion of doing what we do. But, you know, sometimes if we just dare to back up a few steps and just look at our job or what we do and look at it maybe from God's perspective and how God is using us in employment to do a meaningful task that affects others. And maybe that helps you to be refreshed in that that uh, relationship with the the job, and you can do that just about anything that is very meaningful to you in your life that you find yourself getting into a mundane kind of a rut. Now, why am I saying that? Because I, I want to challenge us. Notice I said us. As we, as we begin to, to embark upon this, this series of messages in the Gospel of Luke, I want to encourage you to, to take that which is so familiar with us and, and, and step back. And, and I want to challenge you each, each, each session of my preaching. I want you to, to try to look at the Gospel of Luke in a different light, in a different perspective. Uh, dare to pray and, and ask God to, to open your spiritual eyes to see things that I hope maybe you haven't even really considered before. That will make it fresh and, and even more meaningful. What a wonderful gospel rendition of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ is given to us by Luke and we're going to talk about that but I just want to challenge you and, and if I gave a theme to the messages from the gospel of Luke I, I'm going to say follow me follow me the simple directive that our Lord would give to those that he chose to be his disciples he didn't say love me he didn't say obey me even though he, he incorporated that into his message but the relationship initiated by a decision to follow Jesus. I want to challenge you to, to dare to consider your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because being a disciple is absolutely important. You know, there, we're going to see as we go through the Gospel of Luke over time that there were many people, multitudes of people, who, who came to know Jesus, 
who encountered Jesus, who experienced Jesus. But very few followed him. And Jesus' instruction to enter into a real, authentic, eternally transforming relationship always began with those two simple words, follow me. I want to ask you to ask yourself on a continuing basis, am I truly following the Son of God in my life every day? Am I just someone that has information about Jesus? Do I just know about Him? Am I an acquaintance of Jesus? Have I had some kind of emotional experience with Jesus? Or maybe some intellectual encounter with Jesus? But, but am I? A disciple of Jesus Christ. You say, well, why is that so important? Because Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven, I submit to you and challenge you to search the word of God and disprove me that only those who are authentic disciples Followers of Jesus Christ will inherit the kingdom of God. Will see the blessed promises of heaven. And so the theme for the messages for the gospel of Luke will be follow me. And I'll, I'll challenge you. I'll, I'll remind you. I, and when I say you... Constantly throughout the preparation of these messages. I'm asking myself... Are you truly following the Lord Jesus Christ? So, as we embark upon this wonderful gospel, and it is just a truly glorious rendition of the life and ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, let's, let's talk a little bit of introduction to the gospel of Luke. It's one of four gospels. It's one of the three synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of parallel in, in their content and themes, if you will. It's the longest and the most thorough of, of all the, the gospels that we have. Um, what do we know about the author? Well, we know his name is Luke, like the other gospel writers. Uh, the, the gospel takes its name from the author of the gospel, which is, is Luke. But you know, there's very little information that we have about the person, Luke. His name is only mentioned three times in the New Testament. And so, you know, there's not like a whole lot of biographical information that we know about Luke. But, but as we look at the scriptures, there are things that we can learn about the writer, the author of the, of the gospel of Luke. And, and I say this with that understanding that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. So the ultimate author of all the scripture is God. But he's using Luke to, to pin this particular gospel from the perspective of Luke. And so I'll tell you what, holding your place there in, in, in Luke chapter 1, I'm going to ask you to go back into your uh, Bibles and, and to the book of Colossians. Because here's, here's the uh, information about the writer of Luke that, that is given to us by the Apostle Paul as he's writing to the church at Colossae. And in Colossians chapter 4, if you'll find your way there to verse 7, and we're not going to read verbatim all the way through, but, but I'm just going to point out beginning in verse 7, as Paul is writing, he is, he's, he's highlighting those members of his party that are traveling with him. 
And those, that, and, and, and it's, it com, his, his companions, his traveling companions are comprised of two basic groups. The first group he mentions are Tychicus in, chapter, in, in verse 7. Uh, in verse 9, Onesimus, we, we learned about him in, in the book of Philemon. Uh, verse 10 are uh, Aristarchus. He, he mentions Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And a man named Jesus, who is also called Justice in verse 11. But look, look what he says in verse 11 about these preceding names, these, these members. He says, these are my only fellow workers from the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. So therefore, we know that these men that he's just mentioned, his traveling companions are Jews. But don't stop there because in verse 11, as he continues to introduce his party, he, he mentions Epaphras, but then also over on uh, in verse 14, he mentions Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas. So the last three were not Jewish. So we know from what Paul tells us there that Luke is, Luke is not a Jew. He's not of the circumcision. He is a Gentile. Why is that important? Because as we look at the Gospel of Luke, you're going to see that Luke writes from a unique perspective that you don't find in the Gospel of Matthew Mark and John. Their writings are primarily to Jewish audiences because they themselves are Jews. But Luke, on the other hand, is a Gentile. Whereas the other gospel writers rely pretty heavily on the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, the original, if you will, language of the Old Testament, Luke's quotes come primarily from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, because that's what appeals primarily to the Gentiles. It is the language, if you will, of the Gentiles that he's writing. He's writing from a Gentile. So we know, number one, that he is a Gentile, but then also there in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul refers to him as the beloved physician. So how about that? God chooses to use a doctor to write his holy word. Why not? He used a tax collector in the first gospel. I guess he can use anybody, right? So Luke is a physician, and, 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 and commentators and, and scholars often point out the fact that Luke is, is a brilliant man. And he's a very detailed man. And oftentimes, particularly in the references to the miracles of Christ, you'll see medical terminology. Luke shows a keen interest in those things that are medical and, and, and physical, and, and he doesn't talk in doctor languages like we talk, like doctors talk today. That's why I appreciate, you know, wonderful nurses like, you know, uh, Sherry and Wendy and, and, and uh, the rest of you that are nurses. Uh, I, I appreciate you because you, you interpret doctor language. And so I'm sure, Amber, some of the times you have to go and sit down and talk to patients and say, this is what the doctor said. But Luke didn't talk in that highly medical, technical language. He, he talked in, in, in the language that physicians would use of that day. So we know that he's a doctor and he shows a keen interest in that. But also we know from the scriptures that, you know, that Luke is a man who gives great detail. He's a, he's a wonderful writer. He's a wonderful historian. And we're going to see this as we begin to unfold the gospel of Luke. So not only is he a Gentile, he's a, he's a doctor. He's, 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 he's a wonderful writer. In fact, the gospel of, of Luke combined with the book of Acts, those two books, which by the way, as we see as we get into the gospel, Luke writes a two-volume set. 
So they go hand in hand. The Gospel of, of Luke is followed very soon thereafter with a sequel called the Book of Acts. Those two books themselves comprise one-fourth of the content of the New Testament. So this man that we know very, very little about actually is entrusted to write a, a, a sizable portion of God's Word. And so he's a significant contributor to the scriptures that you and I enjoy and cherish. And so he's writing uh, in a historic, from a historical perspective. He's a fellow traveler of the Apostle Paul. As we saw Paul going through the list of his traveling companions there in Colossians. And I want to show you something interesting if you turn in your books, in your Bibles, to the book of Acts. Go to chapter 16. And, and Luke had the privilege of accompanying Paul, the Apostle Paul, on his second, third, and fourth missionary journey. So he spent a sizable amount of time with the Apostle Paul. That was important. Because all along the journey, he's picking Paul's brain. He's a detailed man. He is, he's getting everything. And Paul is introducing him to all kinds of people along the way. We just saw that Mark is one of the traveling companions. Mark is one of the writers of the other Gospels. And so you know he's, he's picking Mark's brain and, 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 and questioning him. And, and so he's, he's drawn from that. But in, in chapter 16, on this, the third of Paul's missionary journeys, or second missionary journey, I, I apologize. I want you to look at verse 6 with me because Luke is writing. Okay? And, and I want you to give particular attention to, the, pers to, to the, the pronouns used as he's describing the journey. In verse 6, you'll see him make reference to talking about Paul and his traveling companions. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia, and then drop down to verse 7. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go on to Bithynia, and, 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 and the Spirit did not per permit them so we're looking at third person pronouns. Look at verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And now we know that verse 9 introduces what we call the Macedonian call. Where Paul has tried to enter into mission field in Asia Minor, but the Holy Spirit has prevented him and his team from going into Asia. But the Holy Spirit now is calling him over for the first time to Europe. But you'll notice that there's a transition taking place here. In verse 9 it says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now look at verse 10. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately what? We. So, so Luke is now inserting himself. It's no longer a third person. He's speaking more from first person. And scholars have speculated that this, 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 this wonderful historian writer has now joined the team. And from here on, he's talking we. Because now he's joined Paul on this second missionary journey and would be with him throughout his missionary journey. So, so we see the point at which Paul, I mean Luke, is actually connecting with Paul on his missionary journeys. Not only do we know what we learn about Luke from the scriptures... But also, early church fathers attest early on in the 2nd and 3rd century A.D., there's, uh, there's a unanimous 
recognition by the early church fathers that, that the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were written by Luke. And, and, and in fact, two of the early church fathers, Eusebius and Jerome, identify Luke as being a native of Antioch in Syria. And you know that that was a home base for Paul and Barnabas, the later Paul and Silas. And it's very possible that Luke, being a resident of the city of Antioch, was a convert of the Apostle Paul. And so as a result of his conversion experience and his relationship with the Apostle Paul, he was led by the Lord to join Paul and, and, and continue on with him and be with him for the duration of his missionary journeys. So we, Luke is, is, is not only a fellow traveling companion, but he's a recorder of, of key events that transpire in the life of the Apostle Paul. Just imagine what a disadvantage it would be for us if we didn't have the detailed and chronological gospel of Luke. I just try to imagine what Christmas celebration would be without. Because so much of what we draw from our Christmas hymns and Christmas story comes right out of Luke's gospel. What would we know about the early church? Pentecost and, and, and the dispersion of Christians out from Jerusalem. What would we know about the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch about, or about the, 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 the conversion of, of Saul of Tarsus to become Paul the Apostle? What would we know about the planting of the churches and the expansion of the kingdom of God uh, you know, in the gospel? What would we know if we didn't have the gospel, I mean the book of Acts? So you begin to see how a relatively insignificant figure, I mean, three times, the only times his name is mentioned in the, in the New Testament, could play such a key role. But that's the awesomeness of our God. How he can take an individual like that, raise him up and make him an instrument to record so accurately under the inspiration of the Word of God that we might benefit from it later. Well, let's talk about the books of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. You know, both of the, the, the two books combined span a, a time period of, of some six decades. So this is not a short ministry. It's not a short burst of experience that Luke experiences. He's, he's been with, the, you know, with Paul and his team for, for six decades. In fact, the, the, the book of the, the Gospel of Luke starts probably earlier chronologically than any of the other Gospels. Even though it's number three in the line, Luke, as we'll see, goes all the way back to the events that unfold the, the birth of John the Baptist. So he doesn't start like some of the other Gospels with the birth of Christ. He goes all the way back to the birth of John the Baptist and points out the significance of that. And so there's a... There's a, 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 a a span of time that Luke is covering for us and giving us great detail. Scholars tell us that the book, the, the Gospel of Luke, and probably subsequently thereafter, the book of Acts, were written somewhere around 60 to 61 AD. They surmise that primarily because Luke makes no reference to the persecution of the deranged Emperor Nero. Uh, that followed right after Paul's uh, imprisonment and then his execution. 
But uh, so the absence of a reference to the persecution by Nero, the, the Roman emperor, but also even though Luke in his gospel records Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD, there's no mention in his writings of that actual event, which we know history tells us occurred in 70 AD. So around 60 to 61 AD is when Luke wrote the Gospels, uh, the Gospel of Luke, and then subsequently the uh, Book of Acts. As you, and most, most scholars, and you know, they, they want to look at what is the theme? What, what, what is the theme? And each of the Gospels has their own unique theme. And as you consider the Gospel of Luke, of course, he's writing from the perspective of a Gentile. He's writing from the perspective of a, of a historian. So if he's organizing the events. This, the Gospel of Luke probably is the most accurate chronological as far as following the actual dates and events of the life of Jesus and the life of the church. He's very detailed to make sure that everything follows in sequence. Not that it, it is exactly but more so than any of the other Gospels, which seem to follow themes. But he's very accurate in his historical recollection. But as far as themes, Luke focuses on Jesus Christ and his identity, especially from the perspective of those who were Gentiles. Many of the things that Jews would have assumed, given through the prophets, Luke wants to make sure that he unfolds and, and explains for those of the Gentile population of the church. And so he focuses on Jesus and he gives very careful attention to the virgin birth of Jesus. And the fact that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, that he is the perfect man. But also he gives also attention to the fact of Jesus' redemptive mission. As we'll see as we get further in the Gospel of Luke, the last 10 chapters of, Ju of Luke's Gospel, the last 10 chapters focus on Jesus' turning to the cross. His movement and his ministry towards the city of Jerusalem and all the full implications of what that meant. He, Jesus knew all along that he was on a, a mission that he and God the Father, God the Holy Spirit had conceived before the foundation of the world in which he would give his life in absolute agony for, for undeserving, wretched, depraved, lost sinners. And those last ten chapters of Luke's gospel will focus upon the powerful implications of Jesus' journey to Calvary. Also, we'll find as we look at the Gospel of Luke that there's obviously a theme, I think, that comes out of a heart. It's, it's amazing how God uses individual writers and he doesn't just overcome them to the point that they're, that they're, they're not writing from their unique perspective and their personalities and their experiences. But God inspires them to write, but their writings reflect who they are. And so remember, Luke as a, as a Gentile, you know, considered by the Jews so much as an outsider, he, he writes with a, a, a compassion and a sensitivity to people who are 
outsiders, if you will. Luke gives careful attention to the groups of people like the Gentiles, his own people, but also Luke highlights the role of women, and you'll see their, their significance, you know, lifted up in, in his uh, rendition of the gospel. But then Luke also gives a, a, a good amount of time in highlighting the, the so-called social outcast, the religious outcast in his gospel. We also find that Luke gives us a little bit more than some of the other gospels because Luke will give us some of the parables that some of the other gospels don't. You may recall just a couple of weeks ago I shared one of those gospels uh, or parables in, in the message of the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is uniquely Luke, and we'll find others. But also Luke, as I mentioned, being a physician, has a keen interest in the miracles of Christ. And so therefore we'll find in Luke's gospel, unlike some of the other gospels, some of the miracles that they don't mention. But remember that all through everything that Luke is writing, as a man of God, as an instrument of Almighty God, he's writing under the direct inspiration and the direction of the Holy Spirit. And when the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, ladies and gentlemen, it means all. Every bit of what we get from the, Luke, from the Gospel writer Luke and, and the author of, book of the book of Acts, every bit of it is absolutely inerrant, infallible, and reliable. And so as we look at this, let's, let's, let's look now at what I call the long-awaited word from heaven. As we begin to, to read in the Gospel of Luke, I invite you to look at chapter 1, verse 1. And, and Luke is writing to his honored recipient of, of, of this gospel. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which are most surely believed among us. So very humbly and, and rightly so, Luke acknowledges he's not the only one writing about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He just puts himself among, he said, there's many, there are many. His contemporaries, Matthew and Mark, have probably already finished writing their Gospels by this time. If not, they, they, they're certainly compiling it to the point that, that Luke is, is able to draw from information that he gathers from Matthew's Gospel and from Mark's Gospel. We know that Mark was a traveling companion. So therefore he shared information with Luke as he's very inquisitive. So, so he says, you know, there, there are many who have taken to hand to set in order a narrative of those things which are, are most surely believed among us. Luke says, listen, what I've heard, what I've seen, I believe. And of course he's heard Paul preaching, teaching on a regular basis. Just in verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered of the word delivered them to us. And stop for just a second because as, as I shared, Luke is saying, listen, that, that which I am writing to you, this which I am including in my rendition of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, I have, I've, I've gathered by hearing from others, from reading the writings of those who were close to Jesus, who experienced him. But in the time period in which Luke is traveling with the apostle Paul, He's having multiple opportunities 
to be introduced to individuals who were eyewitnesses, who were, who were personal friends of and followers of Jesus Christ. And so he said, I'm not just writing from you know, indirect information. I'm writing from those that have actually been eyewitnesses. When Paul, on his third missionary journey, went back to Jerusalem, and, and, and there he was arrested. And of course, Luke is still with him. Luke had the opportunity to meet Matthew, uh, meet Peter. He, I was reading, one, one scholar was talking about that it's very possible that, that Luke would have had the opportunity to sit down and interview Mary, Jesus' mother. She was on up in age, but still. Imagine sitting down with your notepad and saying, now, now Mary, tell me, tell me just exactly how everything unfolded. And he's recording because he is an avid, detailed re recorder. So he says, you know, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word, in other words, those who are participating in writing the Word of God, he says, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding, in other words, very careful and thorough examination, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. Maybe not talking about going back to creation, but, but from the very first of the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. He says, listen, I don't want to miss anything. And very carefully, very Thoroughly, I examined everything to write to you an orderly account. And that's Luke. As I said, more so than any other gospel, he will give an unfolding of the chronological events in the order in which they transpire. And so it helps us to understand. And he's writing to most excellent Theophilus. We, we don't know any information about this gentleman? But he must have been pretty important. Now Luke's going to write these two significant books that would be included in the canon of the scriptures for this most excellent Theophilus. Some have speculated, based on just the term itself, which is usually reserved for people in royalty, you know, like the most excellent Pastor Mark, the First Lady Amy, <laughs> usually people in royalty or people who are of, of, of higher social class had great social respect but obviously a man that was inquiring a man who was seeking a man who wanted to know the truth about this Jesus Christ I don't know if he had commissioned I know God had commissioned Luke but anyway through this relationship Luke is saying, I'm writing these things for your benefit. And of course, Luke certainly didn't intend the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts to be used and enjoyed primarily by Theophilus, just like all the other scripture writings. The writers knew that, that what they were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit would be in the hands of many people and would be for the benefit of many. To, but, but beginning with Theophilus, he says, you know, I'll write this orderly account. 
most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of things, of those things in which you were instructed. Theophilus has already been reading. He's already been checking. This is not the first round. He's heard different versions. He's heard different accounts. And he's asking Luke, okay, is this it? I want to know. I want to know every detail. I want to know the facts. And now, the final product, Luke is saying, this is it. So after that little prologue there that we find to the most excellent Theophilus, we get into the, the first of the narratives. And it focuses on a, 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 a unique and special couple as we begin in verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, and, and I would stop to pause there if you were to go back in your, gospel, in your Bible to Matthew chapter 2. You don't need to now, but in the early verses of chapter 2 of Matthew, we know Herod is Herod the Great. And he is great. He's a great leader. He's a great king of, of Judea. And he's, a great, he's a close friend of the, of the Caesar. He has great wealth, great power. He, he launches on a massive building campaign to rebuild the temple complex and, and on and on. But he's also a very troubled man, a very insecure man, very paranoid man. History tells us that he killed a good number of his family members simply because he's afraid they may try to usurp his role. And so we know that he was very troubled when the wise men came and told him about the king of the Jews that was born. He wanted to find him. He told the wise men, I want to find him so I can worship him with you. But we knew, the scripture revealed, he had a plot. He wanted to kill him. He felt threatened. So this is the Herod. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judah, a certain priest. That almost kind of makes it sound mundane. A certain preacher. <laughs> certain teacher. A certain priest. He's just one of many. And there were, and there were many priests, ladies and gentlemen, that, in that Jewish culture. So many that you'll find that they didn't have access to the temple on a regular basis, but you had to kind of, you know, draw lots or cast dice or whatever. Kind of like our preaching team does for preaching. No, I'm just kidding. We, we're very organized, and Pastor Mark puts out a very organized schedule. We follow rigorously. Okay, a certain priest named Zacharias, whose name, by the way, meant Yahweh has remembered, and you'll see why that's significant. He was of the division of, of Abijah. Now I'll just explain. If you were to go back all the way back to the reign of King David, David divided all the priests into divisions so that there would be an orderly rotation of the priests ministering in the temple. And, and, and during the captivity, when the nation of Israel or Judah was taken into captivity, only four of those divisions actually returned back to Jerusalem. And so they had to go back and restructure and come up with four. They still use the old names. So Abijah, Zechariah is of the division of Abijah. He's not a descendant of Abijah, that original priest. He's just been put under that category of Abijah. So here he is. He, he has a wife who is one of the daughters of Aaron. You remember Moses' brother? She's a descendant of, of the family of Moses and Aaron, if you will. Her name is Elizabeth, which means my God is an oath. And that's significant. And so here, what, what's so special about this certain priest, Zacharias, and his, and his wife, Elizabeth? They, look at verse 6. And they were both righteous. 
You know, we just went through the study of Job and, you know, when God recognizes in his word a person as being righteous, Abraham, we're looking at the patriarchs and, and, and being distinguished in God's word says something about their, their commitment to God. We want God to refer to you as righteous. It means they were in a right relationship with God. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of, of, the, of the Lord, blameless. And that's significant. Because the next verse is going to tell us something that many of the people would have challenged those very words in the Jewish culture of that day. Just like Job's integrity was challenged by his so-called friends. Because there was a problem. In verse 7, but they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both well advanced in age. Hmm. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> Old people not having children. Wanting children. My goodness, we go back into the book of Genesis, don't we? We find that Abraham... Well, he was just a young hundred years old when his son Isaac was born. <laughs> you think about the prophet Samuel's mother, Hannah, who was barren. And, you know, and, and that was a, a social scorn attached to that. People thought, well, God is punishing you. There's something wrong in your relationship with God. If he's not blessing you with sons to carry on the name. There's a stigma there. But, you know... It, it's, it's, worth, it's worth you taking a trip with me back quickly into the Old Testament because that's not the only time. You see this same kind of a scenario unfold. If you were to go back to the book of Judges, and, and, and I'll tell you what, I know our time is limited. Let me just, it, you can just make a note in your margin. But in Judges chapter 13, you remember the story of the judges. And one of the judges, one of my favorite judges, Samson, you know, the He-Man, the Hercules of the Jews, well, it just appears that, that his parents, Zorah and Manoah, were righteous people. They were godly people. And yet Manoah was barren. And God sent the angel of the Lord to tell them that she was going to bear a son. And so I look at the similarities of, of that discourse there in, in Judges chapter 13 and I find here we have a, a, a couple who are dedicated to God, who love God, who have been praying no doubt that God would, would, would bless them with the son knowing the significance of being able to carry on family name and so in verse 8 it says so it was oh by the way I left you hanging you probably weren't wondering well what about Zohar and Manoah well, God blessed him with a son. Just so happened he was going to be used as one of the judges of the nation of Israel. And he would be, he would have, be possessed with, with great supernatural power that God would have given him. Samson had qualities, but he had weaknesses, and we don't want to get into that. But still again, God blessed his parents with the miracle of his birth. I know, preaching on this topic to, to, to older seniors and mentioning about having babies makes you nervous. But... <laughs> That's not up to me, ladies and gentlemen. That's up to God, okay? So, <laughs> so in verse 8, So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, doing what he was supposed to be doing, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense. In other words, they cast lots and said, Zacharias, you're the man. Ha! 
He's been coming to the temple time and time again with his division. And they say, sorry, not your turn. Sorry. Today's the day. Now, folks, let me just point out something here quickly. That may appear to be somewhat coincidental. Alright? Just, I don't know how you cast a lot, but you cast a lot. And hey, Zacharias, you're the man. I know, I know, not, not in this group, astute righteous group, but, but there are many, many millions of Americans, I suspect, who are booking, banking on chance because they know that there's a certain lottery that has super, I think, seeded all the expectations. And so I think, what, about a billion dollars out there? Somebody's got a number. But that's coincidence. We're talking providence. God had foreordained and orchestrated that this would be the day that Zacharias would go into the temple and to, to minister. And what God is about to do next is absolutely mind-boggling. It is astounding. It is life-changing. So don't read ahead. We'll carry on next time. God is awesome. He is wonderful. I praise Him for His holy word. God has a plan. God has a plan for His people that is recorded from the beginning of Genesis and carries on even through today. Hey, listen, you may think that you're an insignificant Christian person. You're just one of many blending in. Just a certain priest waiting on his turn. Don't underestimate the sovereignty and the providence of Almighty God. I promise you, there are no ordinary Christians Every born-again believer, Jesus Christ, disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been blessed with the benefit of being wooed by the Spirit of God to put your faith and trust in the Son of God and to receive forgiveness of your sins and the gift of salvation and the promise of eternal life in heaven, you are in the family of God. There is and never has been and never will be anyone else in all the history of man like you. You are special in God's eyes. And He has a plan to work in our lives that fits perfectly in His kingdom plan. Don't let the devil or this pagan culture cause you to underestimate the greatness that God has invested in your life, in your plan. We'll see how that plan unfolds for this humble couple as we move forward.